0: Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About.
1: Good morning, friends of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture, and welcome to another special episode of our show, What We Can't Not Talk About. I'm Dr. Mariano Orlandi, and it is really, truly always a pleasure to be with you. As you might know by now, our special episodes are recordings of lectures or events that the Austin Institute organizes here in Austin, or that our senior fellows have delivered in Austin and abroad, including in other countries. In this case, in fact, you're about to listen to a talk that our senior fellow, professor of sociology at UT, Mark Rugneros, delivered in Vienna on May 18th. The title of this episode and talk, The Unsettled and Unsettling Science of Gender Identity, is quite a good intro to the topic and since the episode is long in itself I will just stop here. For those of you who are more visual though, um, remember that th- this lecture is available also online on our YouTube channel and I encourage you to peruse our channel and subscribe to it as well. This is definitely a topic, the you know, the unsettling and unsettling science of gender identity is definitely a topic that we can't not talk about and at the Austin Institute sincerely hope that we can continue to do so and that we can continue to research to do research on these topics and to talk about them on our show so if you want to help us in that respect remember to donate and well i should just shut up now and let you enjoy the listen share and subscribe thank you
0: I want want to talk about a a serious topic. Unfortunately, I have to talk about it in English because this is a drama. If I was going to do a comedy, I could try German. But I want to talk to you today about some of the science around gender and gender identity and talking about some of the sort of basic terms uh, as, as well as sort of the kind of the ramifications. In some ways, I want to lean heavily on what's going on in the United States because it feels as if we're a bellwether or kind of a predictor of what is going to happen further east of us. Although I feel like we got this from the United Kingdom. Her Majesty's colonies uh, all seemed similar in this respect. So in 2002, the European Union Court of Human Rights issued a landmark judgment in the case of Christine Goodwin versus the UK. Goodwin was biological male by birth who had undergone sex reassignment surgery 12 years prior. She sued, he sued, over the change of sex not being legally recognized, not being able to retire at the age of women, and for privacy violations due to his birth certificate still showing that he was a biological male. The reason I'm bringing it up is not to go deep into legal cases, but just to point out that the request itself, outlandish though it may be, was fairly narrow. That was 20 years ago. Fast forward 18 years to 2020. Helena Dalli, the EU Commissioner for Equality, states that equality and non-discrimination are now fundamental human rights. She called for member states to develop strategies to promote these rights, particularly on behalf of sexual minority-identified groups, LGBTIQ. She declared, quote, "...everybody in the European Union should feel safe and free without fear of discrimination or violence, on the grounds of sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression, or sex characteristics." This request was much more vague than the first one I mentioned, but it was far wider. This one wasn't narrow at all. In two quick decades, we've gone from case law with narrow applications to broad societal declarations even thinly-veiled commands about gender identity-based minority groups having rights and therefore requiring particular kinds of protections. But gender identity and gender expression are categorically different from sex, which sets up this collision about competing rights. None of this is what was envisioned with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in the late 1940s. So we have to define our terms. We shouldn't have to. It is a signal that something wrong when you have to go back to the basic definitions. But everything about this problem requires being very clear. And our opponents thrive on vagueness here. Sex refers the biological sex distinctions that mark male and female as different. While it's fashionable to contest this, the sexual binary is unquestionable in terms of human reproduction. Females produce the large immobile gametes and males produce the smaller immobile gametes, the birds and the bees, if you will. One can call oneself whatever one wishes, but if you are to reproduce, it is because you are a male or a female. Gender, on the other hand, is often construed as sort of an artificial imposition placed upon men and women by social and cultural expectations of them, with no absolute connection to biological sex. The idea is not new. However, While gender norms obviously vary across time, culture, and place, gender is not unrelated or artificially attached to sex. Gender is a social construction, but it builds upon nature, and it typically serves human needs. We were recently treated to an example of this, in President Zelensky's February order for adult men to remain in Ukraine to resist the Russian invasion. We witnessed the rapid public renewal of dependence upon sex distinctions. To be sure, not all Ukrainian men felt like fighting. Some women did. But as I said, gender builds upon nature. Women were permitted to leave the country, they were not ordered to. Many did, plenty did not. The policy seems to be working. Now consider gender identity, which the World Health Organization defines as a person's deeply felt, therefore subjective, internal and individual experience of gender which may or may not correspond to the person's physiology or their designated sex at birth. Designated. Assigned. As if a doctor assigns a sex to anybody. Gender identity is said to be a distinct reality entirely separate from the material reality of the body. In other words, gender now belongs to the realm of this disembodied will, which now stands over the body in judgment and chooses an identity without any need for justification. The human person can now be a house divided against itself, the mind against one's own body. This slide is from a study of mine recently published in the Archives of Sexual Behavior. We used it to help explain some of the differences that we found in American adults' attitudes to the idea of treating adolescents with hormones or surgery for gender dysphoria. It comes down to some very basic differences in how people understand the human person, their body, and the ends for which we exist. In the progressive worldview, and I'll take this and explain it since you can't entirely see it, in the progressive worldview, there's sort of a dualism about the person. The self is inside a body, and the two may be divergent. A person can be born into the wrong body in this mentality, but you, the self has rule over the body. Humans have very few stable characteristics which could be termed human nature, and some reject the idea of a human nature altogether. But you as an essential self can express yourself, can recreate yourself through body modification. Male and female themselves are matters of identity. I identify as male. Sex, of course, assigned at birth, may be reassigned different later by your own choice. Now, why did we come up with this uh, explanation? Well, when we analyzed what American adults thought about the wisdom of treating adolescents with hormones or surgery. We put a lot of predictors into the model trying to understand and arguably the most effective predictor of what American adults thought about gender treatment was whether they self-identified to a completely different question as either pro-life or pro-choice. More than religion, more than politics, education, sex, age, it was their opinion about abortion that kind of surprised us. But then we fought back to a, a, an old book by the sociologist James Davison Hunter, old as in 30 plus years old, who he talks about in, in terms of the, the idea of culture wars, this, this notion of a progressive and an orthodox worldview. It worked then, And it seems to still work today on completely separate issues, but also those that concern the autonomy of the body. I happen to hold that the progressive convictions you see here are mistaken, some of them more mistaken than others, but they're not inconsequential. They're not mere preferences expressed within a system in which One can actually think and do whatever one wants. Instead, grave harm results where our social structures, governments, schools, even workplaces, grave harm results where these encourage such falsehoods about the human person. Eventually, these fictions can be established in law and the population is required to be complicit with things that they know are not true empirically. So to legally construct gender identity is to allow material reality to be overwritten by an imagined reality. Now, how did we get here? I've talked about sex, gender, gender identity, Gender Identity Disorder first appeared as a medical diagnosis in 1994, serving as a replacement for the term transsexualism, with the hopes of lessening any stigma associated with that term. Twenty years later, in the year 2013, Gender Identity Disorder is replaced by Gender Dysphoria in order to problematize only the distress that people feel over their gender identity and not about the identity itself, okay? So it's no longer a disorder, it's about sort of a difference or a distress. So the culturally dominant view of gender identity as expressed in those recent EU declarations and legal cases places gender dysphoria a psychological diagnosis under the auspices of minority rights. This is a legal and a political move that borrows from medicine at the same time that it denies that gender dysphoria is actually an illness. However, once you have successfully moved into the minority rights framework, You've moved away from the realm of medicine or psychiatry. Gender dysphoria is not so much a problem as it is considered distress. It is considered a condition best addressed by affirmation, psychologically and medically. A prominent European LGBTQ student organization, offers an example of this. Quote, "...gender confirmation treatment should be available and reimbursable. Treatments should be accessible and state supported. It is crucial that there are no limitations..." They italicized it. "...no limitations to access this treatment, such as the requirement to be diagnosed with gender dysphoria in order to have access to these treatments, okay? If you see the logic of where this is going, gender confirmation treatment should not even need a diagnosis of dysphoria in order to access the treatment. But to be treated with particular medical procedures typically implies that there is something to be treated. It's hard to avoid this since there are gatekeepers to the procedures themselves. But affirmative treatment is quickly moving away from any preliminary criteria except the declaration of a self-identity. That's the authoritative claim about one's own feelings and a desire for the treatment. In general, problems of the mind are not typically solved by medically altering or harming the body. But affirmative care means doing whatever the patient asks you to do. Physicians, endocrinologists, surgeons, really ought to return to basic principles. First, do no harm. Compassionate care involves attending to psychological and psychiatric problems first. Medical treatments were once very uncommon in this domain and limited to adults. But now, gender identity ideology and transgender medicine are surging in children and youth. Youth are especially vulnerable because they're in a state of physical emotional development. And yet they are encouraged to question their identity by both mainstream media, social media, and increasingly in schools. Many have been taught that biological sex is not an objective reality, that it is not binary. This ideological grooming and capture of an entire generation is now widespread in the United States. How successful have these efforts actually been? Johan had some of these statistics up earlier. In 2020, a Pew Research survey revealed that one in six Americans, one in six Americans born between 1990 and 2002, identify as LGBT, with dramatic differences in trans identification between the generations. Some recent U.S. surveys have found as high as 10% of high schoolers identifying as transgender or gender nonconforming. Here are the UK gender referrals. But as Abigail Schreier's banned book, Irreversible Damage, describes, prior to these cultural changes, Gender identity disorder among children was extremely rare, affecting less than one one hundredth of one percent of the population. Most of those, most of those being natal boys. Studies have shown that if these children are simply left alone, the vast majority will naturally desist. That is, they will outgrow the dysphoria and accept their birth sex during puberty. In every study, the vast majority of kids from 61 to 98% grew out of it if the kids were left alone. But that is not the case anymore. Now, detransitioning is very unusual. So what happened? Over the past decade, there have been Exponential increases in the number of children presenting at gender identity clinics with gender dysphoria. The United Kingdom experienced increases of 4,400%. Sweden, 1,500% over a 10-year period. Same pattern playing out across many nations. No sign of slowing down. At the same time, the sex ratio has flipped with far more natal females presenting, than males. Collectively, thousands of young pubescent girls are suddenly discovering that they have been born in the wrong body, although many exhibited no hint of gender dysphoria before adolescence. A preliminary observational study done in the United States coined this new phenomenon Rapid-onset gender dysphoria, it was widely pilloried at the beginning when it was released, until people have decided, like, okay, we'll kind of call that adolescent onset gender dysphoria. That study found intensive online exposure and social peer contagion to be consistent factors and whether the child... The parent said that the child had reported being dysphoric. How do the affirmative gender clinicians explain all this? The surge cannot be attributed to pent-up demand. I've heard that one. That is, by suggesting that gender dysphoria simply went undiagnosed and was entirely stigmatized. So the tomboy of my youth... Who could tackle me and play football better than i could and i remember it somehow she must have been transgender but was just prohibited from not from identifying as such but from declaring it and seeking treatment well today she went on got married had a family but that notion that somehow she must have been transgender escapes the imagination they claim there is No risk to treating adolescents at puberty because puberty blockers are reversible. This will give kids time to think about it. They can always change their minds, right? But you can't help them change their mind because to be part of changing their mind about gender identity is now illegal in at least 20 United States. It's called Gender Identity Conversion Therapy. Yet the idea that it is somehow a conversion to decide that perhaps you were not born into the wrong body, that you may be able to live with the body that you have, this strains simple logic. But its impact is potent. It means that licensed psychologists are unable to help someone to come to terms with life in the body that they have, right? This is kind of the root of uh, standard cognitive behavioral therapy, how to deal with your situation. But in this case, you can't do that. They are, however, free to help someone to seek the body that they want, that they desire, that they imagine. That's not illegal at all. But the childhood to adolescent years are critical periods of biological and brain development, and long-term physical effects of puberty blockers are virtually unknown. Most of the studies on this subject, very short-term. You've had Puberty blockers. You've had cross-sex hormones. What do you think about your body six weeks later? Six months later? Maybe a year later? Not. What do you think about it five years later? Ten years later? You've had surgery to remove perfectly healthy tissue. What do you think about that ten years later? Twenty years later? We don't have science like that. Adolescence is also a crucial period of social development. Yet these children will be held up in a prepubescent state for one year, two year, maybe three years, while they make up their mind. Meanwhile, their peers are moving forward with puberty. Navigating the social milestones that are so common in adolescence. And what is an obvious extension of this trend? An Australian attorney and six of his co-authors recently made the ethical case for supporting the practice of ongoing pubertal suppression. That is to, quote, permanently prevent the development of secondary sex characteristics as a way of affirming one's gender identity. You never have to go on to cross sex hormones. You can just stay on puberty blockers. There should be no assumptions about what comes next in the affirmative treatment regime. In reality, instead of buying time to think about it, puberty blockers most often lock children in to a transgender pathway. Gone are the days of vast majority desistance rates and kids becoming comfortable with their own bodies because they went through puberty. Now they are not. Now, 98% of children put on puberty blockers move on to cross-sex hormones. Why? Because it all happens so much earlier, before any experience of your natal puberty. But it remains an experimental procedure with a high likelihood of changing the life path of the child. Very unpredictable effects on mental and physical health, suicidality, and life expectancy. Claims that it is a civil right, that a civil right is at stake, do not change the fact that what is proposed is a social and a medical experiment. A British woman named Kiara Bell is a key example of this, put on puberty blockers at age 16, then cross-sex hormones, and at age 20 had a double mastectomy, all with her permission, her consent, but all of which she now deeply regrets. In 2020, she sued, saying that she had been rushed into transition, was not given therapeutic options lacked the capacity to understand the long-term implications of her decisions. In her words, I was an unhappy girl who needed help. Instead, I was treated like an experiment. One of the more well-known uh, affirmative clinician researchers in the United States jokes around this, saying, it doesn't matter if you have your breasts removed. You can get artificial breasts later. But in terms of harm, one of the most egregious is with respect to children's fertility potential. Eventually, transgender medicine sterilizes minors. In so doing, human rights abuses are being committed in the name of medical autonomy. This is not theoretical. It's actual. And it's not okay just because they consented. How does anyone justify such drastic interventions on children. They do so by weaponizing the risk of suicide among the gender dysphoric and claiming that gender-affirmative treatments are life-saving. Gender dysphoria, however, is not cancer. It is not a malignancy. Cancer, on the other hand, is not fundamentally a psychological problem suicide is being put into service to a political end. We shouldn't be surprised by this. Indeed it's part of the conceptual veiling that aids the capture of professional organizations like the American Medical Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and with them policy shifts, legal protections put into practice. Refusing Give minors puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, or any of a host of surgical procedures will not kill them, as many seem to imply. Oxford University Sociologist Michael Biggs re-examined the UK Gender Clinic's data on suicides. and He found, very recently, earlier this year, the number of completed suicides among patients at the UK clinic to be so small that he concluded that it is irresponsible to exaggerate the prevalence of suicide. A former senior clinician in that clinic agreed. She warned about what happens to children quote, when inaccurate data and alarmist opinion are conveyed very authoritatively to families. Such as the common phrase that clinicians often pose to parents with a dysphoric child. Would you rather have a living son or a dead daughter? It puts families in a bind all the more given how common early trauma is in such households. Seven endocrinologists and a gender clinic in Australia were discussing the characteristics of children at the clinic. They noted a high number of conflicted family situations and documented trauma. In fact, only 5% of their sample was believed to exhibit healthy levels of functioning. Twenty years ago, what is known as the Dutch protocol for treating minors refused to give hormones to children with apparent psychiatric conditions. So we applied that to the Australian case. 95% of the children at that clinic would be ruled out for starting hormones because they had underlying psychiatric conditions. First, they had to be treated for anxiety, depression, self-harming behaviors. Today, no more. Not in the affirmative care era. Now clinicians claim that the anxiety and the depression and the self-harm are not because of the dysphoria. Rather, they're because of you. It's the stigma they feel around them. So the prescription is to fight the stigma socially, politically, and treat the patient and presume that the gender dysphoria will be quieted by hormonal treatments and surgery. But it's a no-win situation for you. Because any remaining problems after they've treated with hormones and surgery, any remaining differences are blamed on stigma. It's become the catch-all answer. But what do gender dysphoric children really need? They need compassion. They need proper therapy. They need slow care. Their parents need to sever their connection to the internet and social media and to live in the real, material world. They need help addressing the problems in their lives. Their bodies are not to blame, and you are not to blame. But convincing them of that is rather difficult. My research assistant recently counted Over 40,000 online fundraising appeals for double mastectomy surgery costs. Tens of thousands of young women seeking to amputate healthy breasts in search of personal identity or relief from body hatred or distress. You can imagine then that there are now thousands of young people like Kiara Bell who regret their transition. Due to these unknown or due to these known harms, unclear benefits and far too many unknowns, some countries like Finland and Sweden have actually slowed down their affirmative pathway as the standard treatment for minors. In 2020, Finland officially began recommending psychotherapy as the first line of treatment for gender dysphoria. Meanwhile in the United States, We're starting to drop the recommendation for psychological therapy. Sweden will not allow interventions for those under 18 except in strictly controlled clinical trials. In the United States, they reject doing clinical trials. Several American states are now seeking to enact legislative bans to protect minors from such medical experimentation. That doesn't prevent scientists from trying to prove the efficacy of hormones in surgery. This is where I come in. I turn my gaze on the science itself. How the scientists do their work. I'll give you an example. A study based on a very large and comprehensive data set appeared in 2020 in the American Journal of Psychiatry. Sounds prestigious. It is prestigious. Its authors tracked every dysphoric case in Sweden over years. And they measured patients' subsequent use of mental health treatment. First, what they found was no evidence that initiating hormone treatment helped reduce subsequent use of mental health treatment. But the authors did conclude that gender affirming surgery was in fact helpful it was associated with needing less mental health treatment in other words it looked like the surgery helped patients at least the authors thought so in fact they were so confident that in their conclusions they declared this study provides timely support for policies that ensure coverage of gender affirming treatments they kind of packaged hormones and surgery together, although it didn't show anything with the hormones. I read the study carefully. I could not see how they could justify such a confident interpretation of the data. Just looking at the published results, doing a little figuring with a calculator, I could tell that if a mere three additional cases had sought mental health treatment, There would be no statistically discernible effect of surgery on subsequent mental health needs. The effect was that tiny and that fragile. Three cases. I was also able to calculate something called the number needed to treat, or NNT, which is a measure of clinical impact. It helps doctors make decisions about whether a particular treatment is worth it. A high NNT, in terms of numbers, accompanied by significant risk in the treatment itself is considered a bad bet. On the other hand, a high NNT accompanied with very small risk, for example, taking a daily statin pill for high cholesterol, it's considered simply low-risk. It doesn't help that many people, but there's no, barely any risk to it. Ideally, you want an NNT of 1. For every person who is treated, that person is helped. But that almost never happens. Even treating sinus infections with antibiotics typically yields an NNT around 7 or so. But in this study of Sweden, the NNT, I calculated it. A psychiatrist called me up and said, Mark, calculate the NNT for that. I'm like, okay, let's do it. 49 is the NNT, meaning the beneficial effect of transgender surgery is so small that a clinic would have to perform 49 surgeries. In reality, there are sets of surgeries before they should expect to witness. One less patient seeking subsequent mental health care. Now, if no other treatment was available, or if the treatment was non-invasive, hazards small, clinics might consider surgery a low risk but low payoff approach. But even the most common surgeries are considered major surgeries. Some are exceptionally challenging. But conducting surgery on 49 patients in order to secure one better outcome? It's absurd. And for the authors of this study to claim that their study supports gender-affirming treatments? That's unethical. That's wrong. I wasn't the only one who saw this. The journal itself received numerous letters pointing out that the study's analyses were problematic, overreaching conclusions unsupported by weak data. A year later, the American Journal of Psychiatry published seven letters of critique, an editorial note that it was undergoing statistical re-review, which all prompted a correction, not a retraction. I thought it deserved a retraction, but a correction. Now, were the authors professionally harmed by this experience? Have journal editors begun to scrutinize the evidence here a little more carefully? No, nothing like that happened. On the contrary, very little threatens this new line of lucrative, lifelong medical dependency. What can we make of this? Well, it's evidence for something I call ideological capture meaning the corruption of authority by the successful takeover of professional organizations by activists. In this case, the academic journals and the professional organizations that typically give rise to those like the American Psychological Association, American Journal of Pedi- uh, Academy of Pediatrics, they are committed to certain conclusions regardless of the data. That study Went through peer review. The editor saw it. Everybody could have calculated the same things I did and they kept their mouth shut. Entire organizations are disregarding outcomes that are not consistent with the ideologically motivated sense of rightness and justice. Such ideological capture is toxic to the dissent and open debate that is critical to healthy medical and social science. This is just not how medical research is supposed to work. The ideological capture of gender gender dysphoria is also apparent in the efforts to re-educate people in the use of identity language by the rapid formulation of a premature consensus in these societies by the explosion in gender clinics across the U.S. This is in 2007, two. This is today, between 200 and 300. By the suppression of open debate, all of it couched in fear. Fear of appearing unsophisticated, unprofessional, too conservative, bigoted I get that fear I'm accused of that with some regularity but I'm not going to be afraid of it anymore take the example of the controversial the controversy over the American television news program 60 minutes for a long time one of the most popular shows on TV May of last year 2021 they ran a segment on detransitioners. you would think it is healthy To have an open public discussion regarding patients who have undergone a gender transition, but who wish to transition back to their natal sex. Not only did activists seek to prevent the 60 Minutes segment from appearing, but so did well-known, well-published researchers. Leslie Stahl, the lead interviewer for the segment, an award-winning journalist for 30 years. So that she couldn't remember another story, quote, where comments and criticisms began surfacing from advocates before the segment even appeared. It's one thing to criticize it after it comes out. This they wanted to suppress it from ever being released in the first place. Even book reviews are being retracted and withdrawn. Books, yes. Now book reviews, reviews of those books, Certain conclusions are penalized both professionally and in the wider and social economic marketplace. My own research division at the University of Texas at Austin recently sent us all guidance about how we ought to talk about transgender youth. They've never done that about any topic in the 20 years I've been employed there. To think that such external and political pressure do not affect the conduct of basic social and medical research would be naïve. They're telling you, here are the answers you ought to come up with. It's not just about treatments either, but the very language we use to understand the human person. Already in 2014, a senior clinician at the UK Gender Clinic observed how vagueness infuses this language of transgender. She said, The meaning of trans is constantly shaped and reshaped, but it rests on no foundation of truth. The therapist is not burdened with the need to be right or the need to be certain, but only to help clients explore their gendered worldview. In conclusion, gender ideology is an assault upon reality, a demand for the power to define human beings and human bodies as one wishes or deems them to be, not as they actually are. When considering broad societal changes, authentic human flourishing should be the mark and the measure of social progress. In this, the concept of gender identity completely misses the mark. Gender identity is a destructive premise because it is false. The field of adolescent transgender medicine is saturated by conflict over these competing values. High-quality longitudinal research over time is rare. Randomized clinical trials with control groups, non-existent. American professional societies promote affirmative treatment strategies, not because the data over long-term studies shows it's helpful, but in part due to a demand-driven medical culture in which emphasis is being placed on liking what one sees in the mirror, or increasingly, how other people respond to your selfie. Meanwhile, the basics of the explosion in gender dysphoria, especially among natal girls, remains understudied, perhaps now on purpose. Minor's ability to consent is wielded in ideologically motivated ways. This is not how healthy medical research operates. Time in the U.S. is short. New standards are being issued this year for the treatment of adolescent gender dysphoria. Ones that lower the recommended ages for particular treatments. Down to age 15 for chest masculinization surgery. Age 16 for breast augmentation and facial surgeries. Age 17 for hysterectomy. Vaginoplasty, metoidoplasty, bottom surgery for female to male patients, all of these under age 18. Keep in mind, these are recommendations. They're not laws. They're not even rules. They're suggestions. Frankly, they've already been the norm out there. But for years, it was considered too blunt to admit it. So they hid behind standards and claimed, without evidence, that they were being followed. But they're more confident now, hence relaxing down to younger ages. The sterilization of minors is still widely understood among the population to be morally wrong. But there's a lot of confusion about it. But we're not talking about normal times anymore. We're talking about exceptional times. The same rules just do not apply here. I want to conclude with the remarks of a late sociologist who taught at the university that I got my degree from. He was an atheist who was actually agnostic about the proper diagnosis and treatment of gender dysphoria. He said he really didn't care. But he understood well what gender ideology was capable of. 20 years ago in the top journal, which would never happen today, 20 years ago in the top journal in sociology, he wrote, human beings form their social structures around gender because males and females have different and biologically influenced behavioral predispositions. Fairly standard. Societies demonstrate wide latitude here. They can accentuate gender. They can minimize it, or they can leave it alone. If they ignore it, it doesn't go away. If they depart too far from the underlying reality of biological predispositions, they will generate what he called social malaise, social pressures to drift back towards closer alignment with biology. And then he concluded with a chilling prediction. He asserted that Any social engineering program to de-gender society would require what he called a Maoist approach. Continuous revolutionary resolve and a tolerance for conflict. I do see some tolerance for conflict out there already, but I'm not sure I see enough of it. The very distinction between man and woman is at risk today. Not in the minds of average people, but in the minds of the elite. And culture change is not driven by average people, it's driven by elites. You think all this will go away quietly? I wish it were true. I urge you to do everything in your power to protect Austria's sons and daughters from these harms. Write your member of parliament. Register complaints. Praise and thank those who are acting prudently and wisely here. And talk about these things in your household. I'll leave you with the remarks of uh, one of my favorite priests, gone 40 years now. He wrote, In the national life, there are... Two things which are really essential the laws concerning marriage and the laws to do with education. In these areas, God's sons and daughters have to stand firm and fight with toughness and fairness for the sake of all mankind. And if He had been able to envision this, He would have added to marriage and education the fundamental idea of distinctions between men and women. But he could not have imagined that 40 years ago.
1: Thank you all for listening to our episode. I hope you liked it. And if you still haven't, be sure to subscribe to our podcast and to share it among your friends.